The man of will breaks all boundaries. As above, so below. Magic of come to realize is a new way of seeing our own world. Something divine truly does exist. You're listening to the Culture Shock podcast with your host, Dave Escuro. Happy Monday, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock podcast. I'm your host, Dave. Today, I am welcomed by a very special guest, a wonderful filmmaker, Jax Medell, who um, I first came to know her through her activism in supporting um, actor Johnny Depp in the accusations that were made levied against him by his ex-wife that's played out in the public sphere. And um, I'm sure everyone has very strong opinions on it. But Jax was one of the people who really was at the forefront of putting out uh, you know, court documents and information and evidence that I just wasn't finding in the media. So you know, we'll talk very, go in depth about her passion for that and, and making, uh, creating an environment by which victims, regardless of gender, can be, have, a, have a place at the table to, to speak their truth. And I think that's really fascinating that that's something that sort of was thrust upon her um, and that she sort of run with it. And I think it's very noble to try to create an environment by which Anyone who is a victim of domestic violence feels confident and comfortable speaking regardless of who they may be. Um, we talk a lot about her her feature film that just came out, Hour 13. Uh, I thought she did a really excellent job with it. And just general perspective from a female filmmaker in the you know in, in the industry in Hollywood. You know, and her origins and where she's going and her aspirations. So it was a very fun conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. Um, without further ado, this is our guest today, Jax Medell. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you. Um, for of those, course, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. For those who don't know, um, Jax is a director, producer, and I would say, I don't know if this is something that you've sort of added to your bio, but an activist of sorts. Yeah, I mean, apparently. <laughs> yeah, whether or not it was intentional or otherwise, um, you've sort of found yourself in that position. And that's ultimately how you and I know each other um, right. through the through the Twittering machine, as they call it, um, as it relates to Johnny Depp and yep. um, him being a victim of abuse, but being called an abuser and all of that. So I'll, I'll start when I as someone who appreciated his career for the entirety of it, mm-hmm. um, when I first you know, I, and I think maybe this is true for everyone. When I first kind of heard that him and she who shall not be named or getting it was getting a divorce, and then there's the allegations, my initial thought was uh, shock. Um, and but I, I think you know, to this point, you're kind of trained to believe women, so you just sort of there's a disappointment, but you don't terribly question it, even if there's that nagging bit of you inside that that is intuitively saying to yourself that something's not quite right was that similar for you or what was what was your initial reaction to it um I would say actually it was completely different and maybe that has to do with both of our our opposite um genders if you will yeah (laughs) um I actually well yes as someone who followed his career for a very long time and um you you know just really respected everything that he had done um it was I had kind of watched it for a little while because I um, actually thought that he didn't look great, Mm. um, especially towards the end there. And I 
I knew that something bad had happened to his hand. Obviously we didn't know the extent at that point. Right. And so I, you know, and, but we knew he had had some surgeries or something, you know, just something mm-hmm. bad had happened. He had had surgery on his hand. So there is that lingering, like, Oh, well maybe it's like, he's on medication or whatever for that. And that can be strong and does weird things to you. But I just felt that he looked bad and kind of wondered about it. Um, but then when, when that, when the announcement of the divorce happened, um, I cannot, necessarily say that i was surprised i Mm. was surprised when she flung the allegations because i certainly didn't know anything about her really at that point um but then uh within less than a day i was like oh this this did not happen of course i've talked about it a lot on twitter i have a lot of doctors in my family and obviously i have been injured before Mm -hmm. just as a member of the human race right um and I just was like, this is, it does just didn't look right. And so that was my reaction. I didn't believe it really at all. So, so for, I'm, I'm sure most people who are listening will know, but for those who might not know, your Twitter handle is, um, uh, the name's Q. Yep. And for a long time, when you were doing, uh, when you were speaking out and you were speaking your truth and just raising questions and going through the different information that was available, you, you kept a, a level of anonymity behind it uh was there a fear of blowback i mean we both work in the film industry and obviously it's it's a high profile case within hollywood um right. what was like obviously you you something doesn't sit right with you and and like you said you've got doctors in your family and things aren't adding up and you feel compelled to speak out about it but there's a, the downside is that it's a public forum and it, it put it does put a something of a bullseye on you a little bit. Um, I'll kind of quickly run through the whole like lineage of that silly name and everything. <laughs> um, but it started actually on, on TMZ um, because that's where everything kind of first happened. Right. Uh, and I just wanted to like say a few things in the comments and I kind of couldn't be bothered in that moment to come up with some clever little name. <laughs> um, so I just went with QWERTY. And uh, that kind of stuck. And from there, I went to a, a used to chat in a private forum with actually a lot of people who, you know, on Twitter now, like mm. Laura and and a lot of them um, and the infamous one, a.k.a. Christina. Yeah, uh, we were all in a little forum. Um, and actually, I was not that anonymous. I, I spoke very openly and everybody knew who I was there. And then um, kind of interestingly, um, the forum closed literally the day before Johnny launched his U.S. lawsuit because nothing was really happening you know it was right. just kind of quiet and okay the sun and you know whatever and we'll just see what happens the day before the u.s lawsuit <laughs> hit mainstream the forum closed and um so that next within that next week i decided to jump on twitter and i kept the same name so that i could find everybody and they in turn would know who i was so actually quite a lot of people already knew my identity what i did whatever which is um, kind of was helpful in terms of getting going on Twitter. When I started talking about film stuff, there were people that could vouch for what I was saying, et cetera. Right. Um, but that was kind of the whole uh, uh, way that that went. Um, I didn't necessarily keep the anonymity for, uh, listen, I've talked to a lot of people here about this whole thing. Um, there are very, 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 very few people who are not on Johnny's side. Mm. That's my experience. Um, and yeah. it comes up organically um things just happen just be in a meeting and something happens uh i don't know when i was trying to sell day 13 um the tapes had just come out and and i was in a meeting with a big production company they're like oh my god did you hear the johnny depp tapes yeah yeah yeah. and then this whole story about that they were trying to put him in a movie and a bunch of stuff i won't say the details but um 
um you know it just comes up and everybody's like man we love johnny this sucks you know f her you know (laughs) right 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 um and so that's been my experience across the board um and so no the anonymity was really more of just like an internet safety issue um it wasn't really anything to do with uh being scared of the industry blowback or anything like that no so sort of a long-winded answer but there's the whole story but but there was there has been i mean obviously the those folks who feel opposite of, of our opinions mm-hmm. um, can be pretty ferocious. And, yeah. and there's been several people who have gone out of their way to dox you, to expose who right. you are. Um, I think there was one time there was someone who was threatening to call the PGA and the DGA. Yeah, and yeah. Like, <laughs> like they would care about anything other than our dues, you know, right, owed exactly. every quarter. Um, Did you come to the meeting? Did you pay your quarterly dues? <laughs> yeah, that's all. Yeah, I didn't even care if I go to meetings anymore. I know. <laughs> but, but there, I mean, I think taking the position that um, someone who who is claiming to have been abused, especially if they're mm-hmm. a woman, um, taking the position that they're lying, mm-hmm. you know, not to mince words, is a is a somewhat controversial opinion to take. And I think you're right. My initial reaction and your initial reaction may be informed based on some of the societal pressures that are placed on us. Mm-hmm. Um, but even amongst, like, okay, the industry seems like it it's sort of leaning towards believing Johnny Depp's version of, of events. But for you, um, like internally amongst friends or and certainly online, like does it feel like you're sort of going against what is commonly assumed should be the way to approach these situations? Um, I don't know. It's a difficult question to answer because, like for me personally, I always operate based on facts, and so I don't necessarily care about what you know, going against the grain just because somebody said this is the way it should be. Well, I don't really care if that's the way it should be. This is the way that it is. And this is what is happening. Um, And you can't just ignore that because you feel like it. And it's according to you or whomever, it should be some other way. You know, I I just the girl is lying. And so you can what else can you say, you know, and it's not a, he said, she said, there is a voluminous amount of evidence and there is evidence to contradict nearly every single thing that she says, because I'm sure, I mean, for sure you've seen, I champion all the time, like for people to read her claims, read the claims because it's out of this world. You know, she, she makes him sound like Bigfoot and you know, it's like ridiculous amounts of insane violence, like a serial killer. And it's just not, uh, it doesn't stack up when you go on live TV the next day. Well, and I think that there are folks who, cause again, uh, you know, for me, when I started seeing, um, I think it was probably that Brian fellas YouTube channel first mm-hmm. and, or, and, or maybe the umbrella guy, like as I started watching those videos and, and watching their breakdowns and coming across the information myself and just taking a general interest in it, it became very apparent to me that something was up and mm-hmm. that a lot of stuff wasn't adding up in, in, as in the way that she has stated things and presented things and that, you know, the more you sort of go down that rabbit hole, it's hard for me to imagine anyone not coming to the same conclusion that she's mm-hmm. lying. Um, that being said, that does seem, I've seen people on Twitter, which again, is, is no barometer for the main the, you know, mass public, but I've seen people say it doesn't matter yeah. because, because the, the, the overarching um, crusade or banner of protecting women from abuse supersedes the truth in this individual case 
Have, has, is, it, is that anything that you've come across as well from people? I have seen some stuff like that. Like who cares if one good guy goes down because the greater good or whatever. But um, I just don't subscribe to that kind of thinking. You can't just annihilate people um, on the basis of some overarching witch hunt. Um, right. You know, there are so many studies and, and interpersonal violence is not men and women are both violent um, mm. and just humans are violent period. And you can't just decide that one group is incapable of violence because uh, you know, history shows that most of the time it's another way around Um you know, there are a lot of, of stories and a few stories have come out of Britain of, you know, horrible, horrible abuse suffered by men, very um, mainstream stories about a couple people. And then, of course, you have Phil Hartman. And so, you know, mm-hmm. so, so you might call it a needle in a haystack, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And you can't just ignore it when it does. And so, um, you know, I think Johnny's being very brave in doing this. Obviously, it's a really bad time in terms of the culture wars, if you will. Sure. Um, to be trying to undertake this kind of crusade. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen. Just because culturally people aren't open to it doesn't mean that justice can't be served. Because if you, yes, in London, that was a terrible disaster. I think something really bad happened there. Um, but if you look at the U.S. court documents and really the nitty gritty of what's been happening, she is not winning. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned the culture war, the cultural shift that's occurring right now. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm currently reading a book called um, My Lie by Meredith Miran. And I don't know if you've read this book or not, but it's essentially mm-hmm. focuses on this um, lady who was a lifelong activist for um incest victims and, mm-hmm. and, and victims of sexual abuse as children, uh, potentially, uh, especially from their family members, right? And almost in every instance, their fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, she had, at the point of getting introduced to the subject, had had a, uh, you know, as most adolescents do, had sort of an estranged relationship with her father at the time. And so after having you know, explored some of this information and doing her research with it and having a partner who was a a survivor of uh, incest abuse, she came to the conclusion um, during a therapy session that her father had molested her. Mm -hmm. And this was in the, I believe it's in the eighties, early nineties, perhaps right at the point, right at the peak of the satanic panic. And it's, Mm -hmm. we mentioned off recording that in your most recent movie, day 13, you, one of the police officer characters mentioned satanic ritual abuse. This is a term that was, was sort of in vogue at the time. And it caused a mass hysteria amongst uh, the populace in the U S and sort of in line with that was also this idea of repressed memory therapy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, mostly women were coming to the conclusions that their fathers predominantly had done some sort of harm to them. Um, Meredith years later, about a decade later, continuing her therapy and things of that nature, um, came to the realization that she hadn't been abused by her father, that she had not fabricated it maliciously, but that she had, um, you know, through the societal pressure and, you know, the, the inner workings of how therapy can operate, especially operate at the time she came to the conclusion that this was a false memory mm-hmm. and um, she sort of reconciled with her father, but their relationship was never the same. And on a hike with one of her friends, 
her friend asked her, what's the, what's the one thing that you've done that you regret? And she mentions this and her friend says, I did that too. And so that led her down a sort of a rabbit hole of discovery to realize that a lot of people, a lot of women in particular who are going to therapy during this time when this sort of breakthrough occurred had come to the conclusion many years later that their accusations against family members was not authentic. Yeah. And, and that they had felt pressure or maybe they just got caught up in the zeitgeist or whatever it may be. There's a sort of a societal wave that had that draws people to find monsters sometimes where there's not. We still see that now in yep. all the, like the QAnon stuff where, you know, every pizza joint is a secret pedophile. Ring. Right. Tom Hanks is making baby paste. You know, we laugh at those things now, but the, this sort of mania where around every corner there's a Nazi, there's a pedophile, there's a abuser, male abuser, almost always. Mm-hmm. There is there is sort of a, a historical basis that this can be this this can be a, a, a pressure wave that sort of washes over folks and leads them to find you know danger where there's not or or yep. abusers where there's not. And I I wonder if kind of what we're seeing especially in this particular case, isn't a little bit of that, you know, it, it obviously is born out of me too and times up and, and movements that were designed to protect people. But I, I think that we've turned a blind eye to the fact that any movement, no matter what movement it is, can be infiltrated by grifters. Yeah, it absolutely can. And you have to also realize that there are a lot of people making a lot of noise, especially in the internet and in the media, but um, a really big, Big, I would say the majority portion of the world is really level-headed more than you mm-hmm. would think. And, um, you know, I talked about this a few weeks ago when it happened, but I was, I recently served on a, a jury for a domestic violence case here in Los Angeles. And, um, while I was there, when we were doing the deliberations, um, the many of the women who were on the jury with me said, man, they really tried hard to give the guy the benefit. They went in very open-minded. They wanted mm. to everybody to know that they had gone in with a very open mind, which of course I had too, considering, yeah. um, and listened to the testimony and looked at the evidence and this and that, and that they really, really had given the guy the benefit of the doubt and been fair. And their, uh, the evidence really stacked, you know, as we went on through the, the trial, the evidence stacked up, there was body cam, there was a ton of stuff. Right. Um, but going from point A to point B, there was not this overwhelming feeling. Everyone didn't just walk in and go, he did it. You know, he, he's the guy, she said he did it, he did it. Everyone really took a measured approach and listened to what was being presented. And they they made those feelings heard at the end of it. And I thought that that was really important and poignant. Um, and obviously I felt it was important enough to share on Twitter because people really get this insane view from the Twitterverse because right. everything on social media is just bad shit. Um, and so I thought that that was really good and it would hopefully give people pause and hope for Johnny's case in, in Virginia um, that the, the greater public is really not uh, you know, being bowled over by this stuff and people really are thinking and, and being normal. <laughs> yeah. It, it's hard sometimes to remember that. And I've said this, I think on the podcast before, like only 7% of Americans are on actively using Twitter. Right. You know, it's a small proportion. And, and of those people, it's mostly upper class um, uh, college educated liberals. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, I, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's a very high percentage of that yeah. or that. So um but but it's it's always the fringest and loudest generally of any given topic that 100%. one believes in, 
Um, I think it gets amplified because celebrities get involved in it. Yeah, you know, um, and they they position themselves at the forefront of some of these social movements that, again, I don't think inherently start poorly, but I think we sometimes put blinders on that they can that that people who acting in bad faith can be a part of them and, and levy them to bring attention to themselves and bring, you know, uh, a claim to themselves and a spotlight to themselves. But um, yeah, for sure. Didn't the, the lady who started the either, either me too or the time's up, um, you know, it was originally intended, I think for the African-American community. And it was a woman who had started the movement and that had become totally usurped, you know, by celebrity crowd and the, yeah. the, the hanger ons and the grifters. Um, and she wound up just leaving because it was not her, you know, what she had originally intended for, for the movement, for the hashtag or, you know, whatever. Um, and it totally snowballed into this complete, which is sad, you know, because both things could have had really, really good outcomes, could have done a lot of good work for people um, who have been really hurt, like by the Harvey Weinstein right. of the world. Um, and just to see it be taken over and sort of, you know, now we see these these articles about, oh, the Time's Up Fund is being used for like these massive board of directors vacations and this and that, yeah. and nobody's really helping anyone. It just sucks. But I think what people may not understand is that when when you when you support truth being the, the main objective, it will actually amplify and help actual victims because you'll remove because for every for every time there's someone who does a false accusation and mm. it's pretty well known that it's a false accusation it actually does more damage to those who mm. are, are actually victims of abuse because they're much more likely like you said maybe on twitter they'll get the dopamine rush of of all the approval but in the real world they're going to probably be met with skepticism because there'll be that one or two or ten people who will equate it with a false accusation that was proven or or that was salacious or whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen it a few times with the nameless one already, um, where there have been some other accusations on other people that have happened. And I've seen it in the comments, like, oh, don't jump to conclusions. Remember what happened to Johnny Depp, you know, this and that, yeah. which is valid. Okay, people people should always examine evidence and ju- conclusions should not be jumped to. But people, I think they do now, obviously, as time has gone on and you just have uh, people yelling on Twitter because that's what Twitter's for. Um, But those, you know, they have not come to the realization to see all of the damage that Scamber has done um, to the world, you know, Um, and and the fact that there hasn't been this blowback in Hollywood. I mean, there has, but not this big public blowback like there was on Johnny with him losing roles and this and that there's been no no big uh of course I'm sure the London thing has a bit a lot to do with that which is just a tragedy um but to not see her being held accountable in the way that we're expected to hold men accountable is really uh I don't agree with it well and I think one thing that was really eye-opening for me is the way the media treats things so you've sort of alluded to that there's not as much of a blowback as mm-hmm. additional evidence has come to light you know, where she's outright on a tape saying, I hit you, mm-hmm. or what it was, it didn't punch you, I hit you, or whatever her. I don't know what the motion of my hand was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but watching how the media and watching about how certain websites cover, you know, we got it covered, runs an article about her new role in every major franchise in the world every other week. It's none of it's ever occurred. <laughs> no. 
And and I, I'm sure you know this. We got it covered. Is everyone knows in the industry? They literally throw bullshit against the wall. Of course, to see what sticks. Like they and they don't care that they get dragged because people are clicking, and that's the whole point. Which you know, for for a long time, Infamous was trying to tell people, do not click. That's their yeah. livelihood. That's all they're trying to get you to do. They don't care that you're yelling at them. They like know? it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I have some friends who have a podcast called The Regrettable Century, and they just did a three-part series on uh, reviewing a book called The Twittering Machine, where, it, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff coming out now about the dangers of social media. But one of the yeah. main takeaways is that its sole purpose is engagement. Mm-hmm. It, the, it has no incentive to clean up any bad behavior or false truths or outright lies or inflammatory mm-hmm. contacts because it engages people. And, that, and like you said earlier, the point of Twitter is to yell, right? Often into the void, into your own ecosystem of, of siloed-like uh, responses. Mm-hmm. But the We Got It Covered and and whatever other sites she's got in her back pocket, you know, the PR, the, the E-Fartlows and all the, of the world, they, <laughs> they're fine just perpetuating lies because it storms up controversy and that generates clicks and it feeds the algorithm God and they stay relevant when they're, you know, look look at some of the people who have come out in defense of her fairly not relevant folks in the world that have now positioned themselves as somebody, you know, there's no, there's no, no such thing as good or bad press. Right. Yes. Um, But it's striking how, how clearly there's a there's a um, there's an agenda behind a lot of the way the entertainment media has portrayed this case and how they've displayed the information surrounding it and how some things will get buried if it leans one direction and it's super amplified if it leans the other direction. Yeah, it's a. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Um, you know, I'm sure you've seen. I mean, this is a huge other conversation, but you know, there's a whole branch of outlets um that are owned by one main person Mm -hmm. um and that is uh bad news for a variety of reasons for johnny um and that's just sort of a secondary issue that's happening you know i've sort of said that they use um the nameless one more as a means to an end uh for something else that has happened than really that they believe her right um and so it's unfortunate that both things had to happen. Um, but yeah, it just, uh, that, that's really how I feel about what's going on in the media. I think if they were able to get some traction with some, I mean, you know, we see them trying in the overseas with the German tabloid and the daily mail. Um, I think the daily mail is good. I'm glad that they still have them. Uh, because that's a that's a relevant publication that at least has a lot of eyes on it yeah um and i think that's where the tapes first dropped which obviously was huge so um as far as the yeah when you're talking about the media in this case it's very very difficult i mean thank good thank god for people like brian and umbrella guy you know who are getting this stuff out um my only concern is that it's just not big enough you know like you said only seven percent of the countries on twitter who and Brian is getting, okay, 4 million views on the tapes. There's 10 million people that live in Los Angeles County. Yeah. Yeah. You it, know? <laughs> yeah. It's tough. I mean, I, I was listening to Russell Brand's podcast and he was talking about COVID and the, um, the vaccinations and, you know, some of the misinformation and the, and the sort of limited information we've gotten it. And something he brought up that I just found frightening was that I think he said something like outside of CBS, 
every other major news outlet shares at least one board member with not only itself as a media entity, but also one of the um, major big pharma uh, boards. Mm-hmm. That's that's an, that's like if you're an, if you're AB, if you're NS, uh, let's say Fox News or MSNBC, they share someone who wakes up in the morning, goes to a board meeting to decide um, what pharmaceuticals are going to be given out into the world, and then get in their limo, get driven across town, and go sit in at a Fox News board meeting or you know, uh, what's the CNN and then mm-hmm. determine what goes on the news. And I'm not like an anti-science or vax person at all, but it does, especially when you compare that with the way something like this has been treated when there's yep. very clearly an agenda, it makes it harrowing how we're supposed to spread accurate information when you're, when you're literally facing giants and trying yeah. to combat their loud, loud, repeated message what, to, to whatever ends their agenda is. Yeah, that's very difficult. And it is really like a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And everyone's getting these kickbacks and everything else for for doing that between the multiple boards. Now you got Elon Musk sitting on the board of WME um, now that they went public. And that's a whole nother can of worms, you know, forget about his affiliation with the Johnny Depp stuff, but just, you know, er everything, the way that he's intertwined, he sends a tweet and stocks fall. Right. You know, that's not okay. No. Um, you know, that should, he should almost be held for insider trading the way that he's able to manipulate the stock market like that. Um, so I think, you know, that is, I think really bad. And people like that when you, when you have such a, a, a hard line agenda against someone or something, and it permeates through all aspects of media and social media. Um, I just think it deserves to to be looked at a little bit harsher and look at who's pulling those strings, you know, people there, I, there shouldn't be just three or four people um, for lack of a better term running the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we've gotten accustomed to sort of the invasion of privacy. We've gotten accustomed to the, the, the thumb being forced upon us from the major corporations and um, you know, look, I'll complain about social media all day long. And then the second that we're done podcasting, I'll get on Twitter and doom scroll for an hour. Totally. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm fully aware of my own hypocrisy and addiction to it, but it has truly manipulated in some ways, the ways that we've thought, you know, on the flip side, it also allows us, it allows a voice for the voiceless. Um, right. for, and, and whether intentional or not, you've sort of found yourself at the forefront of that movement. And I think that it has spread a lot of, you know, it, it does the good work of, of spreading truth against the onslaught of misinformation that we get bombarded with constantly, even if it's just about one case. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, de- I definitely did not set out to be <laughs> any kind of activist. I just was mad because um, honestly, like I just wanted to direct a movie for the guy, you know, because yeah. that would be freaking sweet. Um, and that was kind of, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a goal, but it was just like, oh, it'd be cool to direct a movie for Johnny Depp. That would be dope. Um, but, um, you know, when you're watching it, it's just like, and it, I think that what uh, this happened with my brother, right? You know, my brother's on Twitter now yeah. being hilarious. Um, I love that you both have avatars that are Adam's family as well. Adam's family. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I know. So, um, 
once you kind of get, cause I would speak to him kind of on the side and be like, bro, because I would ask him about these injuries, you know, which of course yeah. I know already, but like, you just kind of want this confirmation bias almost sure. like this is right. I'm right. Right. I'm right. <laughs> uh, and he was like, yeah, that's impossible. And then finally one day something happened he was like, I'm just making a Twitter account. And you get, <laughs> once you start looking, you kind of can't help, but go deeper. You're like, what is going on here? You know, it just kind of creates this snowball effect. Um, and so I guess that's what happened as far as me getting involved in it and getting louder and more serious and whatever. I mean, I didn't never thought that I would be, um, you know, doing it for so long, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I definitely thought this would be over by now. I would be happier if it was, I think. I think everyone would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially if it goes the way that it should go, you know? Yeah, if it had gone the way it should have gone, whoo, yeah, that would have been... Well, it would have been correct, actually. And like you said, what your actual goal was before all of this occurred was being a director, right. which, you, which you are doing, which you are actively doing. And it's always funny because my, my experience with Twitter is that the moment you disagree with someone, the first thing they do is they go look at your profile and then they try to poke holes at what your claims are, right? right. Because right. I don't use my, my birth name on Twitter people will go like, I've never seen a Dave Oscuro. It's like, yeah, that's right. Cause I wasn't, that's not my last name, you right. know, cause it's not the name I use in film. They try to invalidate you somehow when they're For probably sure. sitting at home, cleaning the Cheeto dust off their couch. What, what was your path to be a filmmaker? Like what was, what was your trajectory? My trajectory was like pretty, I mean, I think probably pretty normal actually for a filmmaker. Um, I did not know that I wanted to make films for until um, I was deep in college, actually. Um, even though I had been watching Johnny's movies for as long as I was whatever alive, probably um, it wasn't that wasn't like those two worlds had not collided. Right. Um, and so originally I went to business school. Um, because I was gonna go help my dad and then do run his company and stuff like mm -hmm. that uh and then i i really hated it um and so i went to music school oh. which was yeah uh which was awesome i had a, i had a really nice time um and it was great and i was being artistic which is what i wanted uh but i i through the course of being forced to play music i fell out of love with playing music yeah um which was kind of interesting experience and so just in um looking for something to do because i was in between semesters and it was easier to change within the school of arts mm -hmm. than to go to like architecture or something. I right. just went to the film school um, just to like bide my time while I figured out what I actually wanted to do. Uh, and then I never left. <laughs> That's amazing. And, yeah, and, it was kind of crazy. And so did you get the opportunity to do like short films in, in film school or? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, we did a lot of short films. Looking back on it now, I, as a filmmaker, looking back on going to film school, the reason I went obviously was not for the necessarily the right reason, although it sucked me in and that's been wonderful. Um, but looking back now as a filmmaker, I would not go to film school. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they made us do these kind of archaic things like shoot on film. They made us learn how to load, you know, Super 8 film and work on a Bolex and all this kind of stuff and load in a dark room, which is just not... Um, not done anymore you know and so it wasn't it there was nothing there that that was leading me towards a filmmaking career it was just sort of this more of like film history which was you know it's fine it's good to know about the old stuff but I, I've often said that education is wasted on youth yeah you know there's a lot of things that as an adult I would appreciate far deeper than if I had in the I mean when I was in college I you know I didn't have any idea what I want to do I think right. I went to school to be 
I think my first thing was communications because that's what everyone does. Mm -hmm. And then it was business and then it was political science. And then before I dropped out, it was uh, uh, literature. My my plan had been to get uh, an English literature degree and then go to law school. And then I took some law classes or pre-law classes and realized that law in Texas is dreadful. And, And then I just worked in retail for years until I got tired of it and sort of stumbled into film. Um, but, but like, I'm, I'm the opposite. Like I had no film school career. I just decided one day I was going to do it. And I'd read Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew. And I bought a camera and me and my now brother-in-law would make these dorky short films, you know, and, and, um, do 24 hour film fest and 48 hour film fest and things like that. And that's awesome. I did that for like a year or so. And then I realized, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think I have potential and because uh, initially I wanted to direct. And so I decided I would I would get on set somehow. So I started being an extra and then eventually I got hired on as a PA. Yeah. And then I found myself in production and in ADing. And 13 years later, here I'm at, you know, and right. everyone's sort of path is different. But did you at least get some connections in the industry that, you know, from film school? Because I've always heard that that's one of the benefits of it, even if you get taught this archaic stuff like film loading which I've like I said I've done I don't know 50 films now and I think I've only worked on one film that ever used actual film everything else is digital you know that was that was super 16 and we desperately wanted the director to shoot in digital but you know she had a, a vision for it so for sure no um you know, doing that stuff was fun. It was fun in film school because that was what we were supposed to be doing. And we came up with all these nonsense little short films and it was great. Um, but I would say no on the connections. Um, that is something that they tried to advertise, but I did not really think that they delivered. Um, I got my start here because, um, no, my, so my family's Cuban. My Mm -hmm. dad is Cuban. Um, and I get the same thing as you are <laughs> with the nationalities and stuff, yeah, yeah. you know? Oh, you sound like you're from, you know, New York or something. I'm like, bro, I'm from Miami. My dad came from <laughs> Havana. Like, no, you got blonde hair and blue eyes. I'm like, yeah, as somebody who knows about the islands, they'll be like, yeah, she's Cuban. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, no, so um, with through that Cuban situation, um, th- we have a few family friends, one of whom is Andy Garcia. Oh, cool. Um. And uh, the other one was um, Dwayne Johnson's ex-wife who runs mm. his, his company. Yeah. Her name is Danny, Danny Garcia. And um, she was friends with my dad. And that's how I got started. I, um, after I graduated, I moved here. And then um, she got me my first job as a PA on a movie that he had a cameo in for mm. Disney. Um, and I just kind of kind of rolled from there. I worked on another movie of his that he starred in, um, which is how I met my business partner. Uh, and then I got in with that AD crew and followed them on to do Moneyball and mm-hmm. um, a bunch of other stuff I wound up working on. I had a really good experience because I was able to start at a higher level right. as far as PAing on, on on good shows to get in with those AD crews that were doing those big films. So um, I always had a good experience uh, and was able to work on these really high level shows, Mad Men and Star Trek and um, really, really good stuff. And so that helped me to meet a lot of people. There are people from, there's a, a executive producer from Star Trek that is like my mentor. His name is Jeffrey Chernoff. Um, and people don't, you know, that's not a recognizable name. I mean, maybe to you, but, uh, you know, people don't, uh, the biggest people, <laughs> the people that run the film industry, you don't necessarily know their names, but yeah. um, 
you know, being friends with him and people like him has really helped me tremendously, tremendously along the way. So that's amazing. And, and honestly, that is how diversity is going to spread in Hollywood, which I think we do sorely need. Um, it's by giving folks opportunities to yeah. to learn their craft. Number one, which I feel is lost. Um, there's Super a lot of lost. a lot of mo- modern filmmakers, especially in the because I came up the indie route, right? Mm-hmm. And and I got to Los Angeles pretty early in my career, maybe three years in or so. Um, but you know, even even out here, you get a lot of folks, especially of a younger generation, who who go from um, you know reading a book or watching a YouTube video or maybe even going to film school to buying a red and being a cinematographer or you right. know directing a short. And all of a sudden they're a director. Um, and there's some logic to that. I mean, Robert Rodriguez would say, if you want to be a filmmaker, wrong, you are a filmmaker to go print a business card and go create. Mm-hmm. But he still advocates for learning the craft, even if it's learning it in your own way. I think that gets lost to a lot of people. It, like I mentioned earlier, filmmaking isn't really that glamorous. It's very uh, rooted in like a working class mentality where you've no, got it's to- like construction. Yeah, you got to spend time like learning- shot selections if you're a director learning how to get a performance how to talk to your dp about lighting to create a mood like all those things and that just takes time and experience so it sounds like you went about it like learning on you know the quality shows where you can see how to do it so that you can take that information and then apply it to your own personal work Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, not to, um, you know, whatever, be name dropping and whatnot, but it's never a bad experience to be standing next to J.J. Abrams while you're like putting the Enterprise on the green screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's not a bad experience. Um, or anyone, any of the directors that worked on Mad Men, the, the, um, the guy that was directing the, the Disney, the very first small Disney movie that I worked on, which like was awesome because there were actually huge huge actors on that movie it was this random little disney movie and there's sigourney weaver and jamie lee curtis i'm like what the hell is this (laughs) you know um but all of that i always say that i consider being a pa my postgraduate experience um that's that's my master's in filmmaking was the years of being a pa um and because that's where i really learned how to run a set and what everybody's jobs really were and mm-hmm. and how things really operated. Um, and to be able to see it on the big shows was obviously a blessing um, and learning from those guys and learning from the producers and running base camp, being by, by all the actors, being by all that action instead of being on set. That's the whole another beast too that people don't would never even think about or <laughs> begin right. to understand. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was one of the best. I would go back to doing it in a heartbeat, except now I'm in the DGA and they won't let me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the things I always feel like um, I try to impart upon people, especially younger filmmakers, which is every position is important, but not every position is another position. So if you're a PA, be a PA, focus on that, learn that, learn around you and get really great at that. Don't, don't move into other people's lanes, but stay in your lane and I mean that in the best possible way. So you get so great at it. That you know, every inner working and especially as a PA, because I, I feel like sometimes people treat PAs like they're gophers, like go for yeah. coffee, go for, and that's not it. It's it's like, it is truly the glue that keeps us set together. If you've got a bad PA staff, yeah. you're in rough shape. And what you're, what you're able to learn. I mean, I, I didn't, I did a little bit of PA work. I kind of elevated pretty fast because I'd had years of management experience, but I did work as an extra 
for several films. I mean, I got to stand 10 feet from Heather Graham on a movie called Exterminators once um, and just watch and watch her performance and watch the director from Scrubs direct. And that's how I started too. Mm -hmm. Very similar. And so if you can take pride in that and really learn it, it will inevitably prepare you for something else, which for you then went to making your first feature. Yeah, it actually, well, it actually went to making short films. Um, the gentleman that I already mentioned, Jeffrey Chernoff, when we were doing Star Trek, I got very close to him. Um, and I, he would ask me, you know, what do you want to do? What do you really, you can't be a PA forever. Do, are you going to be an AD? Are you going to do this? So I really wanted to direct. And he was like, well, when we finish this movie, you're going to go direct something. And I was like, um, okay, like, how am I supposed to do that? He's like, just do it. Just go, just do it. Um, and we, you know, we, uh, that was a big movie and there was a ridiculous amount of overtime, uh, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I made some money and after we wrapped the movie, he was like, are you going to go make something now? And I'm like, I have no freaking idea, dude. Like, but I did, I did. And the next year yeah. I wound up in the Miami film festival with a short film. And what was uh, it? What was that short film? It's called assist. Cool. Which what? was about a PA. There you go. They, yeah. you, you write what you know. Exactly. I just went for it with that. You know, I got a couple of my friends. You know, everyone who's a PA is always trying to be something else, right? So, of course, I met, like, writers and producers right. and whatever. So, one of my buddies who was a PA learned to be a writer. I'm like, bro, help me write this thing. <laughs> I'm like, let's write about being PAs. But it, it held up. You know, I watched it not too long ago with my cinematographer, um, who continues to be my cinematographer to this day. And we're like, dude, we did all right with that. you know. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, again, I'll reference Robert Rodriguez because he was such a big influence on me as a filmmaker. You know, if you've got a turtle and a guitar case, you've got a script. You've got a story that you can tell. Yeah. And, and, and having um, your unique experience as a production assistant and being able to levy that personal experience into something that you could then, you know, create and make part of the world, uh, that's invaluable. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, being able to do that and give and just make a little funny inside look at at how that works and um, you know a little a little look behind the curtain of filmmaking and how things and to really have the experience to do it in a, the correct way, but also kind of a funny way. Right. Um, you know, that was really a good time and it was a good jump start. And what about your first feature, which I just watched say uh, day thirteen? Um, what about it? <laughs> so how was that experience? So you've you've done a couple minutes shorter too before this. i've done um i actually did a lot of stuff before the movie i did i think three or four short films um i also did several uh tv pilots um i did an unscripted series that went to warner brothers mm-hmm. um and that it was in 2016 and they were merging with at&t uh, and a bunch of bad stuff happened and we wound up getting the show back which is i have kind of an extra chip on my shoulder about warner brothers um right but I did a lot of stuff before before the feature came into play. Um, and as much as I had tried to prepare with doing the shorts and all this other stuff, um, it was it, there were things that caught me completely off guard. And it was a, a whole nother ball game compared to making a short film. And when we when we I remember when we wrapped the first week of shooting the feature and when I was went home for the weekend and somebody was like, Oh, I'll see you on Monday. I was like, Oh my God, we're coming back. You know, my experience had always <laughs> right. been like three or four day shoots. I was like, Oh my God. I, it was excitement. Like, Holy crap. I get to keep doing this. Awesome. Um, but we had a lot of problems and uh, there was, it was a lot of learning experience there for sure. Um, 
of course I would do it again. I'm ready to do it again in a heartbeat. There's things that I would absolutely do differently. And there's things that just are outside of your control. Like have it, sure. you know, there were, we were shooting a lot of night stuff. We shot um, like three quarters of the film overnights. And we were in this neighborhood in the house that they used for um, six feet under. And the, the people in the neighborhood were so pissed. Yeah. Even though we had the, perm- we had this huge, they, go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna say they don't care. No, they don't care. We had this huge freaking condor with this giant light on it. Like we called it the midnight sun, you know, (laughs) and people were coming and it's two o'clock in the morning and there's guys coming yelling down the street because the damn light is in his apartment. You know, you feel bad. But anyways, then we had to have film L.A. on set for the whole time, which is not cost effective. Expensive. Yep. Uh, And so then you got to sacrifice other things. And so, uh, so, you know, then, then the movie suffers in the end, um, in some aspects, my, my DP and I talk about it a lot. You know, we wish we had had this, wish we hadn't had to have cops close the street to do whatever, wish we had, you know, wish we could have gotten this shot, that shot, the other shot, but you know, that's the way the cookie crumbled. And so um, there are aspects of the movie that I'm really, really proud of. And there are aspects that um, make me cringe and that's just how it is. Well, I think as an artist, that's a pretty normal response. And um, you know, like I watched the movie this morning and it's very well crafted. I thought you did a really good job of it. I thought you did a really good job of um, keeping a level of suspense. And I don't want to give away too much about the film, but uh, the name of this podcast is the Culture Shock Podcast. And it ties into that theme to some degree, um, pretty closely, actually. But again, I don't want to give anything away, but just it's a good film. I I recommend that people check it out and and, uh, be prepared for a ride because it, it goes one direction and then it might take you another direction and then. You know, and I'm pretty good about knowing where a film's going to go at this stage. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know exactly what the ending would be like, but I had an idea because I've just, you know, I've read a billion scripts at this of point. Of course. But um, I thought, I thought it was put together really well. How many days did you have to shoot it? Uh, we shot, I think, 23 days. That's great. That's like, that's a pretty. I mean, I've shot stuff in 11 days. Yeah. So 23 days is deep. Though I'm sure you wish you had more time, especially if you're doing overnights. Of course, of course, I was we had more time we lucked into the location we wound up getting really getting two houses across the street like that in that area yeah which was so lucky you know it's like impossible um and so we all those shots are real from one house to the other house which is awesome because i always love to use practical stuff you know i don't want to be green screening a silly house yeah um so that was really good uh i forgot what we were talking about (laughs) Yeah, just the, the the logistical issues that come with independent filmmaking. It's oh yeah, I mean you know just everything. The dollars are just uh, flowing out every minute of the day. You know, for silly stuff that you don't think about. Um, when all you want to do is set up the camera and get the shot and put your actor in it, but no, you know you gotta pay the pay for the rigging crew and get the police officers and now people are complaining in the neighborhood and you got to have you know somebody on site to deal with that even though you have all your permits you know so people don't understand i think i think uh, as a filmmaker i'm sure you you can relate to this it's it's tough to shoot in los angeles very very Um, tough like there's a scene again i won't give away too much where characters walking down the streets and there's some uh special effects occurring around them and and just in that moment i am assuming you had to set up cops on either ends to block the streets off. I'm sure you probably needed a pyro person there. I'm sure you needed, you know, you mentioned the film monitor because it's, of course it's overnights, depending on what part of the year you shot in, you might have, you know, 10 hours of nightfall or you might have eight hours of nightfall. And then, yep. and then the great AD in the sky tells you when you're done for the day. Right. Pretty so much. yeah. So there's all those 
technical aspects that people oftentimes they just don't, you know, they don't know it. They don't see it. And so they just think, oh, it's just someone walking at night. It's like, no, there's a condor and there's this effect and it's got a time with that. And Right. And, and that- obviously, you know, we were on a huge crane yeah. doing that shot. And the, actually to add on to all the drama of that shot, it was the last day that we had with that actor. Right. And it was um, actually good, like 530 in the morning when we I know exactly which I thought. It was like 5 30 in the morning we were getting the shot and the sun was coming up yeah and i needed it to be dark and it, you know it's just the hustle 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 and then of, in post we were able to make it a little darker because the sun was really coming up it That's was in great. august oh, at yeah. uh 5 30 in the morning but you know just all those things you got we got to wrap this actor out you know it's it These kids, they, there's a grandchild about to be born was literally the situation oh, wow. i was like we got to get him out of here and, and the actor in question is martin cove who of yes. course most people will know from cobra kai and of course the karate kid he was great in this film and i think you've mentioned to me before he was really nice too martin's awesome i'm actually good friends with his son yeah um jesse uh, and you can see both of them in a short film that I did about called The Shadow, which is a, on the old DC pulp mm-hmm. comics. Um, and that's how I met them was I, I cast Jesse in that short film. And he was like, hey, can my dad come? And I was like, who's your dad? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, Marty Cove. I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. Come on. And so um, I got to be friends with them. And when I went to do the movie, I, I, th- I had Marty come and do that part, which was really fun. And he had a good time. That is excellent. How many days did you have him for? Oh, we had him for like two weeks. Oh, that's not bad. That's actually yeah. pretty good. Yeah, I, it was good. I, I did a I did an action film with um, several actors like Dolph Lundgren, and I had him for like three days. Oh, and he's damn. in like the yeah. whole movie, right? And uh, my very first feature I ever worked on, I worked with Danny Trejo, who was actually yeah. also in this other film with Dolph Lundgren. But um, Danny Trejo's character is in the whole movie, and we had him for one night. And I don't know if you've worked with Danny yet, but Danny's no. on a set schedule. So Danny's like, got a fixed day rate and his his manager gloria does not move from that day rate doesn't matter what size budget you are right oh my god if you're lucky you can get it for half a day and she'll cut it in half but it's like if you go one minute over six hours like you're paying full rate wow so, so we had danny and this is in texas we had danny out there and we worked him like 14 hours you oh, know? Man. oh man and we just shot every single scene that he would possibly be in we shot it in one night and then they just, you know, they sprinkled it, you know, throughout and and cut the reversal on the other characters as needed right, to, right. to make it look like he'd been there the whole time. Oh, my God. Hilarious. No, the great thing about having Marty was, I mean, it's awesome that he's had this career resurgence lately. Yeah. Um, but it was before Cobra Kai was even um, conceptualized. Wow. So he was available. That's I'm great. Like, come, come hang out on our movie for two weeks. Like, come be this guy. And he's like, OK, great. And it's cool because because if you only know him from the Karate Kid or Cobra Kai, you think of him as a uh, although I think Cobra Kai has expanded his character a lot more and given the yeah. actors some range to play with. Yeah. But but if you grew up, oh, those are uh, what was he in? Was he in uh, Commando? I think one, so. Yeah. You know, he's like a tough guy. He's like a you know yeah, very totally. And, and this role that he's playing, uh, Magnus. Yep. It's more nuanced. I mean, he's in he's intimidating but it's a far more nuanced performance than you kind of expect from a, a big fit person who's done action stuff. Definitely. These, yeah. What, it was interesting. He had a good time. That's great. That's great. Was there, was there um, uh, a meaning behind the name Magnus Torvald? 
No, um, I didn't have anything to do with the script. I was, I'm not a writer. I was looking for a script and um, I hit up a friend at an agency. I said, do you have any feature films in this budget range? And he said, actually, I do. He hooked me up with the writers and that was that. That's cool. Well, you could tell the writers and they can take credit for it, that his name translates to great ruler of Thor. Oh, wow. So I don't they know. Might if they might have known. They may have known that. I think there's a moment where uh, a character is looking through some uh, newspaper clippings. Yeah. No, no, he's looking online. And I think that there is an indication that Magnus is like a Norwegian name mm-hmm. of Norwegian origin. So I don't know if that was intentional or otherwise. It, there's no Thor in the film if you're working for that. But there is some stuff that happens. And he does, at, at certain points, act as sort of a keeper of a greater force. So he maybe can wield some Thor-like objects, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned some things about the film that like, you know, you could change. And, and that's, again, that's the case for every creative Everything. person. Um, like if there was like one thing that you would have changed in that film or in your experience, it doesn't have to necessarily be in the finished product um, outside of time or money, because those are the easy, obvious ones. Right. What, what would you, what would you adjust? Um, I wouldn't have, I would have shot on a stage. Mm. Uh, we went and looked at, at the back lots on a, at a couple places. We went to Universal was the best one, obviously just extraordinarily expensive. Right. Um, but yeah, I would have shot on a stage because it would have mitigated so many of the other problems that we had. Sure. Yeah. With neighbors and family and all that, like it just a waterfall effect would have just done away with so many of those other issues. And I think we would have probably um, gotten more of the film that we wanted. Was there any thought of going out of state? There wasn't. And, you know, that's another thing to consider up there with shooting on a stage. Um, you know, we could, we probably could have, but we honestly like, we bought the movie and we greenlit it so fast and we were just like bang, bang, bang into production, which is yeah. another thing that I would not do again, you know, um, to rush the process uh, because I'm sure that that also led to quite a few mistakes being made. Um, so yeah, you know, definitely would, would take my time a little bit more. Um, I also felt that the the movie read a lot better than it actually wound up coming out. Mm. Um, I actually cut close to 45 minutes out of the movie. Wow. Um, you know, and so it's, it's like right around 90 minutes. Right. Which is good, which is good for an indie release. Yeah, it's good. Um, it was funny when the reviews started coming out, there was one that said like, oh, uh, because our, our opening credits are really long, which I kind of hate, but that's another situation. But anyway, some reviewer was like, oh, these really long opening credits, anything to get to that 90 minute feature market. I'm like, bro, I cut almost an hour out of this fucking movie. Well, it's so easy to get jaded too, because like, look, I've on the flip side, I've produced films where it's like, all right, we're at like 88 minutes, slow down the credits, right, make right, them, exactly. make them scroll slower, add some right. names in there, you know, who's got a special guest, everyone can do a special thanks, just to pad it to get to that magic number. Exactly. So get your <laughs> exactly. Is, yes, is, that was not the case. But that the front end of the movie is probably um, what I'm most disappointed in. Was there is 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 horror? Or, and I don't know if I would outright call this horror, but thriller, darker stuff. Is that something that you're really interested in pursuing, or was this just the script came to you and that's when you rolled with? No, the script came to me. That was what I rolled with. I really like like action adventure. Like Indiana Jones is probably my favorite series of all time. You know, that's up cool. there with pirates, of course. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. That's really what I I like. Um, Star Wars, Star Trek, those kind of big, big, big adventure type movies, action adventure fantasy things. Um, 
Yeah, that's really what I like. This movie, um, I went for it because I do like thrillers and this had a little bit of action. We had to have a stunt coordinator, a little bit of stuff to kind of get my feet wet with mm-hmm. that aspect of things that I had never dealt with before. Um, and so that was why I did it because it was contained enough um, for us to be doable, but also afforded an opportunity to kind of learn uh, some of these other aspects of getting into those larger films. Yeah. And it's good. And look, at the end of the day, I'm sure you walked away from it with a ton of experience yes. going from the short films, you know, three or four days to 23 days yep. and just the longevity of it and what that entails and what that the toll it takes on your body sometimes, oh, God. Your, your stress levels, especially shooting like three weeks of overnights, man. That's, yeah. that was just brutal. That, is that was brutal. I mean, I think, I think when people see night scenes, they take it for granted, but you, you have a crew out there for 12 to 14 hours yep. that are, working overnight and it's really difficult i don't know if you were able to adjust i never really do i it's never really, can nope no it's difficult to adjust to a, a night you know sleeping during the daytime especially i would assume as a director but certainly for me as a producer because the phone calls don't stop or care that it's day and you have to sleep four hours like you've got questions at all times and so yeah. you find yourself getting what minimal sleep you can and just kind of powering through it for me, it wasn't so much that people were calling me, but it was that I was anxious. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a really, really great, amazing business partner and and producer who really like makes it his mission to not allow people to bother me. Right. That's um, great. Which is awesome. Um, and so it wasn't so much that I was getting phone calls or anything like that. Also, do not disturb is a wondrous feature. <laughs> on the phones. But I just couldn't really sleep while I was anxious. I knew what was coming up. You know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And then dealing with, you know, kind of the, the problematic situations that we were facing. Um, and so that was more my issue with being able to sleep during the day. But definitely once those weekends hit, like I was done. <laughs> were you able to, because again, I, I've seen this happen on the other end, like getting distribution is massive um were you was that was that how involved were you in that process because it's through your company right yeah i was 100 percent involved and it was uh tedious um not because people didn't want it i spoke to so many production companies but we got um wrapped up very early on um with a, a small distribution company that my composer actually had recommended um and we spent almost a year messing around with them until my lawyer finally called one day and said you cannot do business with these people wow um he just said you know it's just a ton of bad things were happening as far as his back and forth with them um and of course i wish he had told me sooner but i know that he just wanted to you know try to help me do it yeah um but also because we had gotten involved with them so quickly i didn't exactly realize what else was available to us like that there were better and bigger distribution opportunities of it actually available to us because i was feeling so shitty about the movie at that point um so anyways we got out of that but but because it so it took um we finished shooting in August of 2017. It took almost a year to finish the movie because the company that was doing our visual effects was based in Orlando, Florida, and they got wiped out by a hurricane. Wow. Um, and so that we had to wait for them to come back online. And then we spent a year in that limbo with that stupid little company. And so then by the time we're going back out, the movie's like, I mean, it's not really dated because there's no, there's nothing like. No, if, if you tell me you filmed it last year, I, would, I believe it. There's nothing that, that bolts it as, as being three or four years old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but just kind of because of that, and we hadn't, we hadn't done anything else because we were so wrapped up in trying to get it out. Um, 
you know, it was, it was hard and people would take a long time to look at it and they would like it. And I don't know, you know, him and Hall and this and that. And so finally we did get this, uh, this company called breaking glass, which is really good. The guy who runs it is a good friend of ours. Um, and so we were very grateful to him to, you know, cause he was at the end of the day, we just wanted to put it out. I don't care that it went, that it didn't go to theaters, that it came out in COVID, you know, whatever. I don't, you know, I didn't care about that. I just want to be able this isn't this isn't the uh, clockwork orange of my right. career, you know. I just wanted to say, Dad, you can go watch my thing on Apple. There it is. You, that's all I wanted. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I think you have to just get it out there, um, right? Because it, it is a, a, a momentum begets momentum, right? And once you right. have once you have that first feature film under your belt as a director, they never can take that away from you. Totally. You are now and forever a director. Do you do you want to stay in scripted predominantly? You mentioned like you've done some unscripted stuff before, and yeah, the unscripted thing that I did was with, um, a show about sneakers. It was uh, about this this store in downtown LA called um, Riff. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know it. Um, and they are, uh, you know, whatever the biggest sneaker resell store. They sell to all the celebrities and basketball players and whatever. And we had an opportunity to do a show with them, and it was I thought it was a really good idea because that whole sneaker culture thing is so like crazy yeah. in a good way you know people are really into it with the jordans and the whatever um um so i kind of just take ideas as they come in, in terms of but but in terms of me directing yeah i really the larger scripted space is where i would like to hang my hat yeah it, and and it like i said you've already started moving in that direction and proving that you can craft a film and put it together and get distrib- distribution that's that's a massive most people never ever get to that stage or never get off the couch and you've out there and done it and, and put something out there that I, I think is really fun. I think people should check out. Yeah, for sure. And I'm tremendously proud of that fact. You know, we did it, we put it together. Uh, we completed the film and we put the film out. People don't even, can't even begin to understand how difficult just that process is from concept to actually being able to click on Apple and go play the movie. Like that's, yeah. that's awesome. You know, well, that's I, one of the things I'm tremendously proud of. If people knew how much went into this, they would have a deeper appreciation for all films that are, you know, that are put out in the world. I think so. I mean, I don't think people recognize how much like blood, sweat and tears goes into making these things. Um, It's not just like a conveyor belt, you know, (laughs) not at all. It's 18 hour days. I mean, let's say 12 hour days, you know, and but for months and months and months on end, even into post, especially if you're like you and me way through post and, you know, and then the anxiety of putting it out and and hoping that people enjoy it and all that it's like no it's never ending (laughs) so what do you so i I hear this all the time when people say well hollywood has no fresh ideas i don't think that's accurate that's true i think it's got a lot of fresh ideas i think it's pretty risk adverse i agree 100 percent. and i think that they tend to lean into what they think already has a built-in market yes and i think that that's well I think that it's been backfiring for a long time, but I'm hoping that they're starting to realize that it's backfiring. Really want to see more stuff like the Quiet Place movies. Yeah. You know, they should look at that and see, look how well that did. Or like um, the uh, Get Out, yep. you know, all these original ideas that did really, really well. Um, don't go back, don't go remake The Wizard of Oz because in 1930, The Wizard of Oz, you know, like there's a lot of new ideas out there and there are good people with good ideas. Um, 
and they just des- they deserve the chance. You don't have to spend forty million dollars. I don't know how much a quiet place costs. The second one probably costs more. Um, but you know, you don't have to spend. You don't have to break the bank to make these kind of things. No, and I think it's worth it. Yeah, there's um, let's see, the sequel. The sequel. Okay, so the original one had a budget of seventeen million. Okay, that's great. The sequel had sixty-one million. Yeah, of course. But the first one went on to uh, make three hundred million dollars worldwide. Right, but seventeen million on a movie like that, where you can get name. Okay, John Krasinski is not obviously Johnny Depp's name, um, but, but that's name talent, and you have his wife. Sorry, I forgot her name. What? And you get these good player. You got name talent in a seventeen million dollar movie that does three hundred million. Come on, man, that's that's awesome. That's insane. And like I know people in the real world, seventeen million is a ton, but in film, that's it's not like much. <laughs> but I think it's proof that if we can get out of some of the excess that that goes into filmmaking, and we can tell intimate stories, yeah, and give people a chance and do some of these smaller budgets. Um, but give them the support that they need because that's a big part of it. You yeah. know, there's lots of original films and you never heard of them, but, but give them a decent budget. That's, that is a, not a huge risk and not just put all your money and hopes and dreams on big tent poles that are going to inevitably almost always flop Yep. and, and rebuild what I call like the working or middle class of the film industry. I totally agree. You never, you know, like, remember, like, back in the 90s, I know we're close to the same age, you used to always have these, like, romantic comedies, like, 10, 10, $12 million romantic comedies, or even just comedies, or these little horror movies, you know, that was, like, Blair Witch came out at that time, Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, and, and, of course, surrounded by Indiana Jones and whatever else, Um, but there, we have lost the mid-level movies. Yeah. And I think for no good reason, um, unfortunately so, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good ideas that fit directly into those budget ranges. I, I agree. I, I actually think that it's made cinema a worse place and the theater going experience inherently worse because um, we've removed the more intimate stories in lieu yeah. of spectacles. Right. There's absolutely a world in which you can take risk and you can um, fill the theaters with movies that can have the ability to make money. Because if you're only spending 20, let's say you spend $20 million on a film, which is totally respectable budget for a thriller or drama, and then you put a decent marketing budget behind it, you're almost inevitably going to make money. Yep, for sure. And, and yes, it's a little bit of money ball in terms of work within the film industry, but it works. And it does work. I mean, it's worth it to spend $17 million on a movie. And then, I mean, let, obviously you have these kind of boffo experiences like Quiet Place, but let's say you spend 17 and you make 80. That's yeah. still awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. You could do three more of those. Right. And it's, and it's you know, sort of to tie it back into our earlier conversation with Johnny Depp, but one of the results seems to be of everything that's occurred is that he's kind of returned to these more smaller intimate films, which I always grew up on and enjoyed. Yes, I think it's awesome. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I think he deserves to have the big studio movies. Of, of course. You know? um, but if he is enjoying himself making things like Minamata and um, City of Lies and all that stuff, then then that's great. And I'm sure that he is. Uh, and of course, it's it's better suited for to show his range, I think, to put him in those kind of um, deeper stories. But um, he definitely deserves to be Grindelwald, too. I agree. And then look, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about going to music school, when you're forced to do something, it becomes a job. 
Yep. And I'm and I'm sure you felt this. I feel this with film often, where I'm I'm just, you know, I'm doing it because it's my job and it's what I do for a career. But I, it's easy to lose the passion if right. you don't reinvest yourself in the creative and what you're doing and realizing that it's kind of cool what you're doing. You know, you talk if you if you could go back to your seven year old self and tell them this is what you're going to do when you grow up, it's, it's kind of a cool thing to do. Sure. And you got to regain that confidence and that excitement somehow. Yeah, for sure. And that's a great way to do that. Absolutely. You know, it's like when you see, uh, I know that this is kind of a poisonous name at the moment, but like Joss Whedon directed the Avengers sure. and then he goes back and does Cabin in the Woods. Right. Um, you know, you definitely have to reinvent yourself and go back to your roots and, and, and find that passion and that fun again. Well, do you, um, are there any, there, do you have any projects close to you that you're hoping that one day down the line, like, you know, maybe it's your Indiana, your Indiana Jones or your, what, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean that you would hope to like, or are you just sort of keeping it open and seeing what stories come to you and that you connect with? Um, kind of both. There is a project that I've, I've been looking at for a long time. There's a script. Um, this is probably going to sound lame in this uh, attempted pitch, but it's uh uh the most dangerous game with werewolves oh that sounds awesome yeah it's pretty awesome um and and period um so that is something that uh i always keep my eye on and and try to try to figure out uh obviously the last year and this year are not for that uh because it's a huge huge budget situation um but other than that, no, I, I try to keep my mind open and, and just kind of see what comes. I had another, I had an option on another big adventure movie, kind of like Taken, but with a, a female lead. Um, and I wanted to go to Morocco last year and, and blow shit up and do damage <laughs> and, you know, fight uh, ISIS or whatever in the movie. But um, uh, obviously couldn't happen. So, and we, I think we lost that option now or it mm. lapsed anyhow. Um, but I'm friends with the writers, so that's fine. Um, but anyways, you know, it's just if I find things, I try to pick them up um, and see what can be done. And um, but I am also not definitely not averse to to just seeing what what comes at me. Well, I, I wish you all the success and prosperity in the world. I think that you've already started off to such a great spot. You're a really awesome person. And like I said, you've taken time out of your very busy schedule to just promote truth and justice in, in a way that most people would just go with the tide. Um, and if for, if for no other reason, I think that people like you, we need more people like you with integrity in the film industry who have a, a good understanding of what is possible, not just what is what everyone else is doing. That's awesome, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, thank you. That was a really nice thing to say. Absolutely. Um, and I hope that you and I get to work together sometime. Yeah. I think that would be awesome. And then um, just quickly for any of our Johnny Depp people listening, yes, there is a documentary happening. It's coming. Relax. <laughs> Those things take time. And they they will... Things take more time now with COVID. Yeah. Uh, yeah. COVID was hard for all of us, but hopefully it's given you time to sort of re refocus your periscope, so to speak, and set your sights on, you know, the next project and the documentary and, you know, continuing to position yourself and cement yourself as one of the industry's up and coming directors. Yeah. Thank you. It, it has, it, you know, COVID has been interesting because it did give me the opportunity to go into something new, which I've never made a documentary before. So that's fun and cool and new. Um, and also a lot of time to think about, what's next on the bigger horizon so well awesome yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, I can't wish you enough success. And thank you. Same to you. Same to you. Check out uh, Day 13. It's on. I got it on Amazon Prime. I'm, I'm sure it's on iTunes as well. Yeah, it's on all that stuff. Are, are there, is there anything else you would like people to check out? No, any, you can any check plugs? out the... I'm going to plug The Shadow just because it's actually my personal favorite project that I've ever done up to this point. Um, and it has both Marty and his son, Jesse Cove, in it. That's cool. Where can you find The Shadow at? Oh, it's on um, it's on YouTube and on Vimeo. If you search Shadow Kapow Entertainment, then you'll find it. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again. Have a wonderful day and we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good, Dave. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. I would like to thank our guest, Jax, once again for coming on the podcast. I thought she had some very amazing insight in um, not only filmmaking, but as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, how the media has portrayed um, male victims of domestic violence. There is no doubt in my mind that this will be somewhat of a controversial issue. But I would like to ask everyone, regardless of your opinion on the matter, to approach it from this perspective. Truth is something that is often very layered and nuanced. And all truth deserves its day in court, so to speak. It deserves its ability to be spoken. And um, it's very easy for us all to get caught up in narratives and those narratives, even if they're right most of the time, they don't, they're not right all the time. I've always lived by the perspective that if even one innocent person is persecuted, that's too many. I'd like to end this podcast with some lyrics from a really amazing song by John Lennon called Gimme Some Truth. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth now. Just give me some truth now. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is truth now. Just give me some truth now. And I think that for all of us, the goal should always be, above all else, simply the truth. Thank you all once again for listening. And until next time, gold rings on you all.